0: Hey guys, morning, it's Sachin Hale from Hacker Earth. I'm the founder and CEO. After seeing so many well-funded startups implode recently, one thing is very clear. The success of a startup depends more on people rather than funds. And if your goal is to hire the best people for your organization then this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast is a must listen Your host Akshay Dad talks with Sachin Gupta the founder of the HR tech startup HackerEarth which is a platform powering the hiring of remote tech teams In this fascinating conversation Sachin talks about his rollercoaster journey which started when he became a founder pretty much straight after passing out of IIT Roorkee the years he spent bootstrapping HackerEarth the journey of going global and his take on building a great organization. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to learn how to build great organizations that change the world. So I grew up in a small town called Saharanpur. It's uh, it's in Western UP, uh, very near to Dehradu. Both my parents are doctors. My brother, elder brother, is also a doctor. His wife is also a doctor. So we truly are a family of doctors. And my wife is a doctor in philosophy or rather, you know, computer science fields. <laughs> I think what kind of discouraged me was the fact that you got to study like 10 years before, you know, you can start doing something. And I just didn't have that patience. Saranpur doesn't have a very rich coaching center culture. And prior to that, I'd gone to Delhi DPS in a boarding school, and I ran ran out of that place. So I get my IEP subsequently from Roorkee. So did a bunch of things. Uh, first year, critique, I was just finding a footing. I started preparing for civil services in second year. Did it diligently because this Roorkee had that culture of IES then you know spoke with an is officer in Saharanpur, and he told me what the stark reality is and he said that like one of the things he told me was even though you want to do well or you want to do good you got to operate in the framework of the society and you know you'll end up doing some or the other kind of correction you know even if you're not doing it you'll be a part of it right so that disillusioned me so stopped that did some research in third year published a couple of papers and then I think when we were in pre-final, and I think in a pre-final year, I, I thought, okay, let's kuch something. So we didn't have a clue what building a startup really means. But our education system is, well, at least at that point, designed in such a way that people would get theoretical knowledge. But I had no clue ki website. Like, as simple as what is what is Gmail or what is Google when you log to a URL. And I just felt yeah, something is off, right? I understand that compilers should know something, but you should also understand how the web works. So we said, okay, let's build something. And it's a hobby project. And we'll also get to build, learn how to build. Um, so one of my friends at that time, I didn't get through a Google it And that was a phone interview at that point in and he was pretty smart. So he was like yeah, because he didn't know what to do, right? Like, usko nahi tha, phone interview, depeh, mm. you know, kya koch. So we created something we called at that time my career stack, which was a precursor to Hacker. Earth. And it was just an interview preparation portal. And coincidentally, I was also preparing for my campus placements, which happened six months before our graduation, which was December of 2011. So I was preparing for this, and at the same time I was also we were also working on the website. And it so happened that I, because I solved so many interview questions, I actually went, got selected in Google. But in that process, we'd also created this platform or portal where people could come in and go through interview questions. We used to take mock telephonic interviews, which is very interesting. The same uh, mein, and they thought this is some website or somebody uh, expert is taking into them. We were, we were taking mock into college, and so this was like a
1: content platform, like a let's say a Quora kind of a thing or something like that. But... yeah,
0: yeah, and not even crowdsource, we were putting interview questions and more, more like a blog. <laughs> so, it was like a blog, okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. So, how did this become hacker at then So, uh, we launched this platform, uh, like I told you, right? It was a hobby project. So we, lo- I learned a lot. We learned a lot in that process. I remember very clearly this was winter of 11. So college, abhi apna band ho gaya tha and we were like eight, so we decided to home. So the whole of December, so starting December, we worked on this. And February fourteenth is when we redid. We launched a redone version of my career stack. So it was a project only. But we posted it on Y Combinator. So we said, "Yar, do you know, So let's see ki kuch me. Right. And we posted it and we forgot it. Like we didn't expect ki kuch hoga. You posted it meaning you you applied at Y Combinator and this was. That's it. No, at that point Y Combinator had just started their uh, startup school, so we didn't even know about it. But Y Combinator, uh, many may not know, there is something called as news.ycombinator.com. Product hadn't, kind of, file. which is like link site. So, correct, correct. But getting featured on news.ycombinator.com is extremely difficult because imagine all over the world people are posting links and they have a very stringent about it. So, after I and we were surprised to see we were on rank 16 and it just shows 30 links. And we were blown away. So, I think that was... There have been a few life-changing moments over the years. I think that was why. And then I remember we tracked it for almost twenty hours, we didn't sleep. And we were taking snapshots. So from I think sixteen it went to thirteen, then it came down. And for the first time we had like hundred people live on our side. And like so banaya, right? Like there is some value in it. And that's when you said, okay, explore. Why do you think it became so popular? Was it because like Google, Microsoft are like global,
1: globally aspirational companies to work for. And like that's right. And, and you were helping solve that
0: how to crack a Google interview. I think because we had genuinely good content. And there was a need for something like this. People don't know ha- what happens behind these tech interviews now. So there is a lot of content. Back then, there wasn't. So it just like people related to it. Ke, yeah, this makes sense. I will, I will use, see something like this or use something like this. So maybe there is some value in what we are doing. So then we started speaking with people in the industry of Ashish Sinha, uh, right? Uh, I, uh, I'm forgetting the name of his media publication, Ashish uh, Sinha. I think now he... Oh, he's, he's a journalist. Uh, yeah, yeah. He had his own tech uh, uh, publication at that time. He was a Rootkia Dominant. Next big word. Yes, next big word. And Nandit Mangal from Common Floor. So these guys had come to Rootkia and given a talk. And you're like, okay, these are the industry solvers, right? So we spoke with a bunch of them. They guided us. And then one of my seniors at Rootkia and realized the interview press is not a big market, but everybody that we spoke with was struggling with hiring software developers. They found it hard. And because my friend had gone through this journey of applying for a role, not getting through, but still being a fit, right? If we saw that the process is broken, both sides, right? Developer side may be fatwa is hiring side will be people struggle, and I think that's what was the focus. And we being engineers were like, yeah, easy solution right? This cannot be an unsolved problem, and that's how we kind of took the lead. February was when we launched this, and we saw traction, but we graduated in July, so we didn't start off right away. I actually took a Google job. And I came to Bangalore, worked here for three months, and this was the time. So we always knew ki karna hai. So it was never a question of if; it was more of a when. So while I was at Google, one of my co-founders was in college, and we were working together building out the tech. And I was meet- so the best thing that I did at that time was I met tons of people. Almost every other day, I would meet somebody here, and that's how I got into GSF Accelerator. So they had just started the batch at that time. And this was very short. They had closed out their batch. We just happened to meet Rajesh. I happened to meet Rajesh last minute. So I met him on, I think, the 10th of October. Uh, he said, sounds good. Call your co-founder. His name is Vivek. 12th, Vivek came down from in a train. Met them. 14th, we were in the Accelerator program. In a matter of four days, we got this opportunity. And at that point, I think it was like, yeah, We've been working on this, right? We are passionate about this problem. We're getting an opportunity of being into an accelerator program. Again, we regret, right? So right? So I think this will and since then this has been my kind of a life philosophy, which is like no regrets. So I was like, yeah, 10 And I met a lot of people in Bangalore in just those three months who I like to call like living zombies of sorts. All of these guys had these aspirations they would complain, I want to do something. But, you know, I can't, I have a family. And I'm like, boss, you are living a life that you are not happy with, right? Why are you doing that? And I didn't want to be a living zombie, right? 10 years out. And it fail will And also because it doesn't stakes what to be lost or won, right? So I think that was our personal decision. Google, leaving Google, I've been quizzed about so many times. Because, you know, look at it from a new grad perspective. You get into a job where you have a cab, you have food. And nowadays, these things are given in any startup. I'm talking about 2012. It was a luxury. Office mein khana Milta, tha. milta bhi tha, toh, crap hota, I paid for my coding Microsoft. So getting three meals a day and being fattened up like pampered was unheard of. I think the decision was only hard on the day I had to leave. So I thought about it. But then I think before that and after that, I was like, milega, so let's jump in. My family, when I why I said lucky, is because my family have been like extremely lucky. I told them and you, can't, you won't believe it. A lot of people don't believe it. My father said, fine. I mean, that's it. A single line, right. right? And I asked him a few months. He was running his
1: own practice. So that mindset of doing your own thing was there in him.
0: Yeah. And then so I asked him a, month later, a few months later, ki, Baba, like, you were so proud. Ki. I got into Google and I was the only one in our college who got into Google at that time. So what happened? He said, I trust you. And that's why I said, I'm lucky. Like he said, if you want to do this, then you must be taking the right decision if there's no Did GSF accelerator also give a check? Like, what was the model? Yes, yes. So this is for just setting up the entity. So GSF would only be able to put in money after we set up the entity. So the ROC requires you to like put in, you know, lakh of rupees. But GSF funded us with 15 lakh at that time. <laughs> Imagine, I mean, you know what the funding is today. It must have seemed like a lot. No, but at that time,
1: for a bunch of like fresh graduates getting 15 lakhs, no, no strings attached almost like would have felt amazing <laughs> yeah it was life changing so uh, that what so, so you started building it out from the perspective of helping employers and like like you knew employers will pay for it or
0: like what was the business model? We actually never picked a site. So even today, Hacker Earth has a B2C side, which is focusing developers. And then it is a B2B side, which is focusing employers. So we kind of, in fact, we the early product was very user-focused. So we would build this place where people could come in and solve coding questions, participate in competitions. And slowly we started getting employers. By the way, this wasn't with foresight. It was just we chose that. But I think it was a very good thing because it helped us build that credibility. Like, I remember our first major customer who posted a public uh, contest was Adobe. And uh, at that time, we got Adobe, like, and this is, we're just starting off. we like, nobody has hacked uh, So that kind of helped us. But uh, we were also very clear from day one that developers who charge We are developers ourselves. Like we knew how nowadays developers are very different. When they graduate, they have, like, it is. But being in Roarki and growing through that, we knew that we won't charge developers. So hence, we wanted to figure out a model which where we would charge the employers, which we discovered a year later. We didn't do it right.
1: So what did you do uh, once you entered GSF? Tell me that journey till the Adobe, the first paying customer came in. What was that zero to one
0: journey? So uh, luckily, because we had worked on the product from I know that year 2012 up until October when we officially started, we weren't starting from zero. We already had a product of sorts. What was the product? like? You had like a
1: blog with interview advice. So then what was the next version of the product?
0: Yeah. So the next version of that was a content here. But now if somebody wants to solve a problem, right? A coding question, what do they do? So that's where we built out an uh, a browser-based ID. Kya browser browser, you write code there and the code would be automatically evaluated. So that way you could read and practice in real time. Okay. So that uh, a browser-based ID, what is ID? ID is where you write code. So typically people write code in their systems, right? And development environment, I guess IDE stands for that. Okay. All right. Yes, integrated development environment. So so yeah, a development environment in the browser. And again, it was mainly revolutionary for at that time because Abito a lot of things happened on the cloud. Back then it wasn't the case. So build that piece of technology. And what we built out was this platform where we started conducting online coding contests. So we'd be coming from RootKey and being from college, right? We had that network. So we reached out to various IITs and we said, hey, we are posting this contest. Would you participate? And we, all, so like a hackathon, basically, like, what, like hackathons. Correct. And we became this place where top developers would come in and show off and win these contests and we had leaderboard and they would show up. So this was our community side of the product that we were building out. In GSF, we kind of figured out what would be our monetization strategy. And it was very clear, you know, it has to be on the employer side. And two things kind of came out. One was this technology that we had built, you know, which, which we're conducting these hackathons. This can be used in a way by a company to, to screen candidates. So imagine if a hackathon is an open contest, right? Now you do it in a closed environment where you're sending a test to a candidate and they take up the test. Actually, those tests used to happen in hack, in our, during our days as well. But they were happening on pen and paper or they were happening over like you would send an exercise, people would take it up. So we wanted to automate that process because it was a very bad experience for both the candidate as well as for the employer. So that's the B2B product that we started building. And the core technology was the same, but building out an interface for a recruiter, building out an interface for a hiring manager. So I remember we took about a year and in hindsight, again, we were very slow these days companies raise a lot more and are very quick in building it out. But we had just two two interns. And one was my co-founder Vivek and I, four of us coding on the platform from 2012, October to I think September, 2030. So built it out in a few pilots, close pilot, and then eventually launched it in, in that month, in 2030. And so there then you are not just providing the
1: IDE as a technology, but then you're also providing outreach, right? Because you need to make sure that there are enough good quality people who give the, so, so how did you do that at scale? I mean, doing it for a one-off project, I can understand you would have used your network, but how did you make that as a scalable
0: asset for the business like that? talent pool, high quality talent pool. Yes. So did a lot of things in the first three, four years. We would conduct these inter-IT contests. We had, we started putting out practice content on the website, started reaching out to a student talent and it was very natural for us to get the student talent because we were very familiar with the psychology of what a student goes through. We started uh, this series called Code Monk where we curated content. If you go through these 10 things, then you're prepared for your interviews. Uh, we would conduct obviously contests with, uh, employers. So brand names, brand names like Adobe, Amazon were huge and they got us a lot of validation. But I think a combination of conducting these hackathons in different forums, like I said, inter IIT. We, the other thing that we did was we gave our platform free of cost to students and said, go conduct your own thing. You know, you have a coding club, go conduct a coding contest. Seniors would teach juniors. They, a lot of colleges have technical fests, right? So in technical felt, there would always be a coding competition, which was earlier happening on their own machines and their own systems. We help them take it online. But I want to put it out for other listeners out there and anybody who's trying to build out a community. You do so many things which don't scale in the early days. And it only over a period of time you see things stacking up. The point in case being in the last three years, we added about three and a half to four million users. In the first six years of the company, we added about less than three. So it took us six, seven years to add three, but only three years to add double that. And, and yeah, because all of those small things that we did in the early days kind of uh, started stacking.
1: Was the, did students get like cash prizes or was it like a badge of honor that you can put it on your CV that you have served? Self- hacker you have one some hackers called hackathon or like what was the book for them
0: yeah so it was both but we were obviously being so poor of sorts we we couldn't give out for cash prizes of our own so whenever it was company sponsored we didn't charge the company we only had one condition that you were to give out something to the uh, winners but what we also did our own stuff uh, which where we were no companies there it was more about badge of honor and we had a leaderboard So people would, so we introduced a ranking system where depending upon how frequently you were participating and how well you were doing, you would get a rank. And there is this one thing that we did, which nowadays is very common, but it caught on like that time. We we would give out t-shirts to the winners, top three. And we designed the t-shirt in such a way that it was aspirational. So only few people would get it. And then we launched this campaign, which we said, you solve 100 questions on. And you know, when I say launch this campaign, I'm exaggerating. I answered a question on Quora. One student asked, how do I get a hacker a t-shirt? I said, solve, solve one day question and we'll send you a t-shirt. And you would not believe that caught on. Like we would get t-shirt requests every day, two, three. So we then had to officially launch a program and formalize it. So tell me about the screening product. How does that work? Like, is it like you choose the language
1: for which you are hiring and you like it already has some pre-built assignment or challenges
0: that they need to solve? Or like, how does it work? So uh, now we've taken a, a skin based approach and obviously the product has matured significantly over the years. But basically you could come in and say, I want to hire people with these skills. Uh, it could be, say, Python, SQL, databases, whatever, right? Uh, we have almost uh, 300 skills on our platform now. Every skill has questions which are tagged to it. So we have the largest content library in this space, about 60,000 plus questions. So when you come in and you select these skills and you select, let's say, an experience level for which you're creating this assessment, and that experience level is generally a proxy for the difficulty level, the system will automatically quick questions which are tasked to these skills and that difficulty level and generate an assessment for you this so when you say
1: questions are these like multiple choice questions or are these like you talked about how you created a
0: browser-based ide it's the coding assignment i mean we have multiple choice questions as well but the core ip of the product is that there are coding assignments so people actually have to write code which is then evaluated in real time and then we not only check for correctness of the code, but we also check for efficiency and how accurate or how, how well it is. How, how do you do all that, like efficiency and so on? Like, so there is a concept in software development called unit testing, where you test a piece of code. Basically, let's say if you want to write uh, a piece of code that is supposed to sort numbers. Okay, now what's the way that you would test it? You would give it input of numbers and see whether the output is correct, right? And you would give different types of inputs. So let's say sometimes you'll give negative numbers, sometimes numbers are the same, right? And you will try out these kind of decimal numbers. So what all conditions it handles. And so that's how you check for logical correctness. And the same, in the same testing unit, testing concept, you can also test for scale. So what you could do is you could give like a million numbers, right? And see how the code responds, whether it is able to handle that scale. So we took that same concept and every question in Hacker has a set of test cases which check for both logical correctness as well as for scale or efficiency. And we have built this sophisticated technology where as soon as somebody writes code in the browser and hits submit, That code is taken to a server where we compile the code first, then we run the code, then we feed in one by one different inputs to these codes. So we, for any question, we have test cases. We try the response for each test case, then aggregate the score across all those test cases. Uh, So that's how the whole evaluation comes together. Okay. So like,
1: tell me how the revenue journey was going. Like for the first two years, like by let's say 2012, you started, so... By let's say 2015, what kind of top line were you doing at the annualized level? Of-
0: we hit our first million in 20... So, so 2018 is when, 2017 or eighteen is when we hit our million, first million. So it's in that sense a very slow journey, right? Because for the first four years to be candid, we were not focusing on revenue at all. Our focus was to build out the community. And while we had the assessment product, we never looked at ourselves as a B2B business we were just looking at ourselves as a b2c company which was building out a developer community it is only in 2016 when we consciously took a decision to say okay we and there's you know, just, you know I'm, I'm candid to share that uh, at that point in time we realized we do not we will not have enough money to just continue building out the community business unless we have a clear monetization focus So we kind of pivoted to a B2B model where we started shutting down or like literally put on life support, our community activities. And it is very interesting that at that time, we were probably less than a million users. I think 2016 is when we touched upon the right? And now we are like 7 million users. So we've added 6 million, but we'd already shut down active engineering effort. That's because a lot of things had already been built by. And then we started focusing on the B2B side of business. Then we grew, I think, 7, make it 17, 18 is when we did a million. Then we went to three, then we went to six. And then now we are at about 10 million plus revenues. Wow. So like, how are you funding it so far? Like uh, when you took that call
1: that, okay, we need to focus on B2B till then, was it, it through the accruals, or or did you raise more rounds after the GSF accelerator gave you that fifteen lakhs? Oh
0: yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We because we obviously won't have been able to support, so we needed capital. So after our GSF accelerator, so we actually got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars at the end of the. So the GSF program was structured in such a way that I think twenty companies were selected, all got fifteen lakhs, and at the end five got one hundred and fifty k. But then after that, we got introduced to, this is 2014 Jam. I was at a, I think, NASCOM event. I met Shripati there. And Shripati is from Prime Ventures. These guys were just starting out their fund. And I think we had like, even our GSF journey, even this was like, I met them on Monday. They met Vivek on Wednesday. By Saturday, they said, okay, we want to fund you. And the next week, we had a term sheet that we we're looking at was that fast. And we we're not raising money at that time. But we raised a seed round from them. Then we went on to raise uh, Series A, which was four and a half million, I think, in 2016. And then we raised a uh, Series B, which was six and a half million, which was in 2018. That was our last round of funding. Since then, we've been uh, break even. So both 21 as well as 20 and even 22, we will be break even. Have continued to grow aggressively. Okay. So by the time you hit that one
1: million number of community, this was primarily India focused or were you also? building
0: community outside India? So we were, we always had global aspirations. So we never really did something which was at the product level. We never really did something. It was just India focused, but all our outreach efforts, all our community efforts that we were doing in the beginning were obviously India focused. So we naturally actually got a lot of India usage, but since beginning, we have had users outside. Developers tend to find interesting things on their own. So even today, about 20% of our user base, or actually 25% of our user base is outside India. That is when we, other than US, we haven't really put a lot of marketing efforts outside. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that pivot from focusing on building
1: developer community to focusing on monetizing businesses is not an easy pivot to make. How did the, you pull that off? Like, like talk to me about that journey.
0: Absolutely. So the thing about these changes, when we look at them in hindsight, they obviously look like a point in time. But nev- in life, n- never really something is like that. It all builds up. So 14 is when we, 14, 15 is when I hired my first two sales guys. One for US and another for India. US guy was also in, in India doing US hours and selling ex- through inside sales. I'm very hot. And they must have been selling the streaming solution
1: in the US because you would have had a big enough community. So I think 14, 15, we were like
0: 200k. Then how did you figure out the pricing and all? Like what you will oh (laughs) I would say I still haven't figured out the pricing to be completely candid. What I learned over the years is don't be afraid to increase your prices. Just throw something out there and see what sticks. It was a discovery process. We went out. uh, I still remember and we changed the pricing model. So earlier we used to price... Per assessment. Like there was no concept of license and you just sell on an assess per assessment cost. per candidate assess. correct. Correct. And our first price point was, I think about 100 rupees. And it was arbitrary. That's the first three digit number that you kind of run into. I think also dollar was about, uh, I think about 16, 65, so like $2 sounds like a good number. So US was about $2, India was 100 And then we just slowly increased prices over the time. And we also change the model. So today we also have the concept of licenses. You can't just buy assessment. You also have to buy a hiring manager and recruiter licenses. And the unit price in India has gone up to almost like three hundred. The uh, unit price in US has gone up to ten dollars. So, uh, you know. so why bring in friction of license fees? Like
1: you would want a company to have a lot of assessments happening through it, right? So, so why charge them for each person who comes on, like? Maybe a company should be able to add every team manager to the platform and tell them you have assessments for people that you are interviewing. So like,
0: why bring that in the last thing? That's a great question. And my sales team badgers me on that every other month. But the thing is, if the pricing is just pegged to an assessment, then I think the pricing is very reductive, right? Then it means I'm just valuing the assessment that I conduct. What about the collaboration that comes together for a hiring manager and a recruiter? Like we have a proper workflow. You come in, you create those assessments, you can send it to hiring managers, they can review it, they can give feedback, they can then review the reports. There is a journey of candidate history that gets created over your time. This is how the person came in. These are the different tests that they took through the interviews that they took. We're providing you data insights. This is your skill, uh, you know, these are the kind of skills you are assessing for, these are the skills you get these kind of leads for, right? So, does that not mean anything? That's one. Second, also from a business point of view, and one may argue, do what the customer wants, not what you want, but uh, there is variability when if you're just pegged to per assessment, right? Like this year, I may have less number of candidates. Tomorrow, I may have higher. So for us, revenue predictability becomes an issue. But your recruiting team and hiring team doesn't fluctuate that much, right? So it was, obviously, price would still reduce if my usage goes a little, but I have a baseline. So I think those two reasons is why we moved to that model.
1: Got mm, it. Okay. okay. So is this like an ATS in a way? Like you can search through all your candidate pool and invite them or like run a campaign if you want to if you have a new opening then run a campaign with your existing pool and stuff like that like like what you can do with an ATS
0: product no so an ATS we go and integrate with an ATS so we are a step in the applicant tracking system when I said we give data and insights it's basically around your your technical recruiting is where we would be giving you all these insights like these are skills you're hiring for, these are the kind of candidates that are going, coming in your system. But we don't intend, we have a basic applicant management system. So you could move a candidate from top of the funnel to shortlisted, and then you can conduct multiple rounds of interviews. But we don't do, you know, sourcing in and we don't do like onboarding. And stuff. That's not our focus. But uh, you have this community. So why
1: not do sourcing? I mean, why not make it to the way you have a job board like LinkedIn, etc. But so this could be like a developer focused job board because you have six, seven million community
0: of developers. So that is right. a monetizable asset. Oh yeah, absolutely. Again, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> this is something that as a strategy we've been talking about for many years. I think one of our biggest apprehension was that people come onto Hacker today, not just for jobs. There are developers who are building their bragging rights and there are people who just love coming to the platform because you know this is where they can solve interesting problems a lot of people in their upskilling journey are coming in in a safe space where right? there nobody's judging you you come in you go through these assessments and you know how good you are um, i mean if there's our apprehension we may be completely wrong but if it has become jobs focused then we might push away or scare away some of the other people who are not yet ready for the job and then it also becomes spammy of sort. like if you open up a recruiter access of course they're going to do out people and get them which is you know their job right I think it's a matter of prioritization we, because our assessment business and the hackathon business has been growing and there's enough to go there. We haven't yet focused on it. But why I said you hit the nail on the head is because this is the next big thing that's on on our mind. Right. How do we kind of create that balance of not pissing off people who are not coming here for jobs, but then create this experience for those who are looking for jobs?
1: So right now, the only way for a company to source is by sponsoring a hackathon, basically.
0: Absolutely correct. Yes okay okay what is the pricing for that like so we charge in india we charge about five thousand dollars for an smb about ten thousand dollars for an enterprise the same pricing in us so while we don't do talent sourcing we do talent engagement in the us because we can help a company in conducting a hackathon where they can easily get like i would say anything between a 100 to 500 people coming in and kind of Engaging there, so there we charge a price starting price point is twenty five thousand dollars, goes up to about fifty, fifty, sixty thousand
1: dollars. I'm not clear on the difference between India and US. So you said in US you don't do talent sourcing, but in India you do talent sourcing. What is the difference?
0: In in the sense, the end the outcome of the hackathon is that you actually get a qualified applicant who you can hire. But the outcome of hackathons that we conduct in the US is typically people who are just engaging with your brand. We don't uh, commit on hiring because we haven't really built out the job-seeker community there yet. So right now, all our hackathons in the US are talent engagement focused.
1: Okay, okay. so so the company gets the data of people who are good developers and then their recruiters could call them up and pitch an opportunity.
0: They could do whatever they want to do. Sometimes companies also want to evangelize the technology. Like here's my API built on top of it, those kind of things. So so we don't really care what you do with the talent, but we don't commit that they will be job seekers.
1: Right, okay, got it there. And in India, when there's a hackathon, then there's very clearly a job attached to it. Like like everyone participating in the hackathon knows that if I do well, I'll get a job
0: offer. That's right. Sometimes just like branding in front of college students. So like we work with multiple large enterprises who conduct these hackathons at a regular cadence. And this is how they take their message, their brand to the universities.
1: Okay, okay, okay. Like employer branding kind of a initiative. That's correct. So in India, hackathons, you have some sort of a success fee model also. Like if they get a qualified lead, like qualified lead means somebody who they can offer or somebody who accepts the offer. Like what is...
0: So qualified lead is somebody who has cleared the assessment uh, and demonstrated that they have the skill and they have expressed interest in that opportunity. Now, whether they get an offer or they accept an offer is not something that we can control. We don't want to go down that path.
1: Hey, absolutely. There's too much risk in that. Mm.
0: Yeah. And then we can't control it. Right. Otherwise, then have an army of recruiters uh, in hacker. Yeah
1: yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. okay so how do you market the hackathons like like is it only like you publish on your landing page and so on or do you do email campaigns or do you also publish on other sites like say linkedin or whatever
0: or? so hacker.com slash challenges where all our hackathons are listed obviously everything goes there and we have our user base so we do email based targeting but we were just going through the data the other day. More than half of the tri- users that end up participating come in organically. Organically meaning they know about that we have these things going on Hacker So they would come in and check it out. We also leverage different social platforms. Not LinkedIn for some reason. Facebook, Twitter, team has tried Reddit and Snapchat as well. But you know, mostly Facebook is what gives us that be- uh, you know, benefit. We don't do a lot of paid spends there. For certain skills, we have a lot of people. For certain skills, we don't. So wherever we see less people, less skilled people for that particular technology, we will leverage these social channels a little bit more than what we would do otherwise. But the goal is always to acquire users from external sources in a way that those users can be reused. So we would not do a cam- We would leverage a campaign, but the idea is to get these users otherwise for other activities. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Tell
1: me about the uh, organization today. So now today you're like a ten million dollar era company. How big is your headcount and how many people do sales, how many in product and so on. And, and like, what were your learnings of building up the organization?
0: 180 people and then I think 20, 20, 25 odd interns. And that's a culture that we've had from day one. Like interns push a lot of things, move a lot of needle at Hacker Earth. So about 30, 30 odd interns at any given point in the last two, three years. Engineering team is about 50 people. Sales, India sales is about 30. US sales, which includes our inside sales is another 30. But Quota-carrying reps are only five. So we've been very efficient in our quota-carrying reps. The rest is on marketing, demand gen, uh, like emails, and cold calling. Uh, and then marketing is about 20, split between B2B marketing and B2C marketing, um, then the functions and the rest. Uh, so I think uh, team building, yeah, you, t- t- you asked me about team building. What has worked or what I've learned over the years is and I think this is something that everybody would say. Hiring the right people at the top level is like managers and your your senior managers and managers getting that right is very critical, very critical. And while we all in startups spoke about putting out a flat hierarchy and things, I don't, I'm of the school of thought they can't be a completely flat hierarchy because people early in their career don't know everything, right? They've got to be mentored. they got to be, that naturally leads to some kind of hierarchy and I don't associate hierarchy with power struggle, right? Let's keep that aside for a moment. So getting the top level management is very right. You know, when we were 30, even 50 and then even 100, I found it easier to propagate my vision as the CEO, right? This is what the company's after. This is what we're doing. All hands would have like 100% attendance, right? Now, COVID also has contributed to it. We are now remote, right? It's become harder so your second level management becomes the amplifiers they emulate if they emulate your core values as a company below them kind of emulate it as well and it's a trickle down effect so getting those people is very those your vps right is important and how do you get that right like i mean you
1: you have to get it right but tell me how to get it right that's more valuable
0: yeah so i like right, absolutely so there is again no rocket science to it so first is to accept that you will never get a perfect fit. I haven't been in a situation where in the leadership role, I've got the perfect candidate. Everybody has their strengths and their weaknesses. And you need to figure out as a manager, and this is very personal, right? Some people are great at micromanaging. Not maybe micromanaging is the wrong word. Some people are great at getting down to the exact small little things and attention to detail, getting it done. I'll accept I'm not good. I hate it when I have to do it. So I'm not the kind of guy who can meet someone who needs that kind of attention to detail for sustained periods right so first i need to understand what am i good right and then i need to match that to the person who's coming in now mind you it is very difficult to get that in one two or even five hours of interviews so i think what i have uh, what has worked for me is getting value alignment in the interview if i have been a founder ceo is very aggressive right like i'm just making it up right and i don't see the same aggression kind of panning it out in the other person, then there is there's no value alignment. Another thing that I look out for is like, we build the culture of the company. I'm very proud of it. In a way, we are very respectful of everybody who's in the company, right? It doesn't matter which level you are. And you'll see it, right? Like some people have grown the ranks in an organization where they're very used to power, uh, you know, authority and power, which they would not get here. So if I sense that I would not go ahead with the person because I know they would come in and fail. So in the first two rounds of interviews, a conversation, if you could do that value alignment, then that takes care of the software aspects. And then you kind of figure out what are the strengths of this person. And like I said, if I can complement them, that's when I would make the decision. If I can't compliment them, then I would not go ahead with them. I know it's still a little vague. If you want, I can dive into more details, but that's the broader framework that I use. When I say you can compliment them, that, what does that mean? Like, just help me understand. Yeah. So, uh, let's say, um, I'm hiring VP of sales. Okay. And I'm not a sales guy, I'm a product guy. Okay. Now, if I, so the, and di- I'll tell you what the difference is. If you tell me go sell, and the customer on the other hand, on the other side, is excited about learning the product, I can talk about it for hours, right? I can talk about my product, I can solution it for them, I can give you the perfect thing how we're going to put in. But if, This is about building the relationship, whining and dining with the other person, using them to get another stakeholder to come in and, you know, like that kind of, uh, you is using your sales charm, I suck at it. Now my VP of sales has to be someone who can do that, who can, who understand the sales rigor and the sales process better than me. But I can be the person who can supplement them with the product, how to sell. But, you know, what to do in the sales process is what you need to do. Another thing is, I again, because I'm not a sales guy, I don't know what is the sales process. There's, and there's a science to it. It's not, uh, some parts of it is art, but like top of the funnel demand. How do you progress from level one to level two? How do negotiations happen? How do you navigate through vendor onboarding? So I, if I can compliment this person, then it's a good fit. If both of us are solution-selling guys, it is doomed to be a failure. So that's what I meant by it. Okay, okay. So, so zooming out,
1: you said one of the things... To get right is hiring your leadership team well. What else is
0: there? With respect to team? Yeah, I mean, with respect to org building, like. Yeah. I think the other thing is to very clearly call out what is acceptable in the organization, not rather acceptable, what is not acceptable and what is celebrated. So as a new person coming in, if I have clarity on these two things, then most of my behaviors, a large set of my behaviors are taken care of. So one of our core values is don't be an asshole. And it is in the face for a lot of people. There have been instances where someone read this and they're like, right, that's, it's not nice language. no." And there are some people who look at it and say, boss, I like it. Right. I get it. <laughs> it's so clear. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so that's the value alignment I'm talking about. If my VP feel uncomfortable because my values don't be an asshole, big rat alert, right? So, so very clearly we are saying that if you are an asshole, you will be called out. Now this can empower some people or it can scare some people because somebody can say, boss, I can make my people shine, right? Because now I have this complete alignment with the org. Some people are like boss, I can't play politics here. So not what is not right is very clearly called out. And then what is celebrated? I mean, I mean, there are other values as well, right? right? Like one is disagree, but disagree and commit. So, and it's, I'm not saying we invented these things. It's out there, right? We just adopted what is good. But it tells people that moving forward is more important than getting what is right but also calling out what is separate what is celebrated so we tend to focus too much on the end results which i also come from a school of thought after a point in time effort doesn't count it is what you deliver but there are other things that you can celebrate which is are people collaborating well together if if someone is a good person who's there to help you out are you calling it out and when you systematically celebrate these things people see it and that's where they realize okay this is what the organization is so i think that's the other thing is very important what is not acceptable and what is celebrated calling those two out is important
1: yeah. how does the celebration happen tell me about that like how you execute that like you have like your hr team which is like keeping an eye out and sending an announcement or
0: something like how does that happen like, so we were very unstructured in that and it kind of worked when we were up till 50 people so an uh, example of would, of this would be somebody won a deal uh, and this was a feature, let's say it was because of a feature that an engineer built. The sales guy naturally would come in and say, hey, I want to share we won this deal thanks to Vero. Vero was one of our very early engineers because he helped me. And believe me, people still remember these things, right? And this is I'm talking about six years back. It happened naturally, but we decided to codify it as much as we can. Because once you're a certain scale, you know, once you've advanced, I think a founder has to let go of nostalgia and agree and accept that, you know, the systems will scale it and not your personal connection with everybody. So now we made it a process where there is like buddy appreciation. We have spot awards. We actually nudge people to call it out. I just had a conversation with my leadership team. Like everyone is empowered to give a spot award to somebody else. That's correct. Yeah. And then we have a regular cadence on it. So every quarter, there has to be some awards that go out. If there is underutilization of a quota, then the team won't call out box. So what's happening is your team not doing well, right? Because not giving award is also a matter of concern, right? And then we have a greatest of all time, GOAT award, right? So now everybody knows box, I need to emulate this behavior and then I can be a GOAT. And you use some SaaS
1: platform for the managing the rewards or like, is it in-house built or what? Like,
0: It's on Excel. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we have OKRs and we have clear definitions of what constitutes an award for someone to win an award. It's typically a combination of subjective feedback from the manager and objective uh, data points in terms of performance and OKR achievement. Um, and, you know, while we may want to codify and objectify a lot of these things, You know, you can't take out the subjective element, right? Because at 180 people, there are a lot of things that happen, which may not be completely visible. So you've got to trust your managers uh, and allow that subjectivity to be part of the process. So why did you invest
1: in implementing OKR? I believe that's not like a very easy thing to implement, right? Like you you need to put in a lot of effort as a founder, Mm -hmm. like your personal time and effort to really implement that so just talk to me about that what made you feel the need for it and uh, how has the journey been so
0: far I'll answer the lack of word. the journey has been I would say good I would say good to very good I won't say it has been excellent Because I, and also keep bear in mind when we did this OKR, it's got all the rage.
1: Just give a quick uh, one-line explanation of OKR for people who don't know what is this stuff.
0: Yeah, so OKRs are objectives and key results where what one does is, and we follow quarterly cadence. You can follow an annual cadence or a monthly cadence where at the start of the quarter, an individual would, uh, and from an individual to a team, everybody would define what are their objectives. And what are the key results by which you can measure whether the objective is being fulfilled or not. And then at the end of the quarter, we do uh, mid-quarter reviews and then we do end of the quarter reviews where you quantify how what your progress has been. So uh, two reasons why we did it. One was we did have some framework in place earlier. Where everybody would have tasks and we would see how well they have done their tasks. But the problem was that there was no standardization and sometimes business as usual activities, what we call as BAUs, were, were the measure by which somebody was being measured. Which is fine for roles which are too operational, like my SDR, where the person has to do X number of emails, Y number of calls, right? But it takes away the aspirational aspect out of it, right? Now, even an SDR can have an OPR of saying, I will crack uh, 10 enterprise meetings, which would generate Y amount of revenue, whatever it is, right? Now, what it does is instead of tracking activities, now you're tracking objectives, which directly contribute to the bottom line or top line of the business so there is an immediate value alignment or goal alignment rather for an individual with the organization that's one second is transparency all our OK, we don't use any tool but all of our OKRs are published in a single folder I can go in and read whoever's OKR I want to do third is a kind of facilitates collaboration and I do a very poor job of it uh, collaborating as an organization I think we can do a lot more but at the very least as a salesperson I'll have a complaint. sales and marketing is always fighting right every organization Oh, marketing is not doing that. They're not doing... It becomes very simple. You know, go look at their Rokias. Is it in the okr What is the progress, right? And if it is there, then you are not informed. And if it is not there, go challenge them. So I think those are the reasons why we kind of introduced Rokias as a framework. You're right. As a founder, it is time consuming and you can't, it, it cannot be done bottoms up. So I started writing my OKRs first. We only introduced it for my staff team. So my, all my VPs for constitute the staff team. Next quarter. So first quarter, it was me and my staff team. Next quarter, it was staff team and the leadership team which is the second layer of managers. Yeah, just tell me also how he translated to your VPs like some
1: examples of like this is my OKR and this is for my VP marketing his OKR and VP sales his OKR and so on. Like
0: Yeah so my OKRs are generally so wise I initially started off by taking up organizational OKRs. I realized pretty soon that as a CEO I'm accountable for at the end of the day everything so it doesn't make sense to put in all the OKRs because those are essentially my VP OKRs. Like I can take a revenue good OKR, but then what will my VP take? Now, I only take those OKRs where I'm actually directly doing work. Like, for example, if a part we don't have a VP partnership, so partnerships is something that I drive. So I will have an OKR saying, establish two partnerships which would result in XYZ. Uh, but what we have introduced is an hacker Earth OKR. So all my VPs, their OKRs would roll up into Hacker Earth OKR. It's an abridged version. And this is what the company is going off. Earlier, what I was doing was my OKR was actually Hacker Earth OKR, which kind of sounded narcissistic. Like Sachin is not doing all of that. It's Hacker Earth what's doing. So this has helped a lot because I start my quarterly hands by saying this is what we're going to do. And I end by saying this is what we have done. Everybody knows what's happening and there is very clear alignment. So my VP of sales will have an OKR like obviously revenue target. But then we dive deeper and say, I need to generate X amount of opportunity for next quarter. Another example, could be, let's say we were trying to change our deal structure. We want to do a more of enterprise than just making it up. So we will have a goal specifically for that. When we launch a new product, we will not have a revenue goal, but an adoption goal saying, I will open up X customers in this use case. And we have even added things like training. So if somebody has to institute a training program, we will add that as an OKR in their, in their sheet. Right. Mm yeah okay, okay okay got it got it okay
1: so a couple of things I-, I want to kind of zoom in uh, based on what you've been speaking so far just go one by one so you said you have about 30 interns my personal experience of working with interns has been a little underwhelming because they're there for a very short duration how do you make that a success I- and it's been a hit and miss even in terms of finding committed people like you know, out of every five people, maybe two are committed C or not. Like, like that's what
0: I have seen. Yeah. So we've been successful in interns in terms of two, de- two departments, engineering and sales and marketing. Others, we have it, but it's very transactional. So in sales, we do th- six months interns as much as possible. We don't do three months interns. And there is a machine, there's a process machinery that we set up. You come in, this is what you do, this is what you're expected to deliver, this is your ramp period. And I'm being honest, if you don't meet those goals, then internships don't last six months. So it is a very rigid process and at the end of those six months, you get converted to full. So the thing for for people is that it's not a one-time thing. It is something that I'm working towards for eventually getting a role. And for us, it's a soft landing in engineering. And these would be MBAs, B.Tech, or what kind of interns for sales? Oh, all over the place. We've seen people come from MBA, engineering, CA, BCA. Uh, only thing we have not done is arts. Uh, we would have people from arts also, but very few, but all over the place.
1: So for the sales team, this is a like, instead of hiring experienced salespeople, you hire interns and they put six months with you getting experience and then they get absorbed and therefore that, Gives you a much more engaged sales force rather than having somebody who's a mercenary who's coming just because you're offering a
0: 20% hike over his last salary. Correct. That becomes my pipeline. And that's who they, they are an input for the lowest round. So you become a DG, demand generation specialist. From there, you'll become an SDR. From an SDR, you'll become an AE, and then you'll become a manager. And the beauty of this is when you give people that kind of career growth, they are extremely committed. My best performing folks are the ones who've, grew, who've grown at hacker, Earth and they are like thankful for that opportunity, right? Um, so it is required, it requires work and it is effort. But if you're able to crack it, it just works. And how do you screen the interns? We have a fairly light screening process. So we obviously use our own assessment process, assessment product. You got to go through that assessment. We even do it for non technical, even though our product is your assessment. Yes. Okay. They do a tech assessment. No, they do a non-tech assessment. So we'll have like, you know, grammar questions, reading and writing, comprehension, those kind of things. And then we do an interview and we give them an assignment. So while our assessments are what the whole assessment is a philosophy and it's less the philosophy comes from the perspective that I very strongly believe interviews are a hit or a miss. I mean, I've had bad deals, right? Where I have interviewed someone and said, well, he will not work out. And I've been proven wrong in a number of times. And I've been proven right Also, There's very little science to it. But when you have an assignment objective, and which is very, the chances of going wrong reduce. So in a sales assignment, we'll actually ask them to do a research, populate, let's say, a list of X number of companies, Y number of employees, and sorry, contact names and craft an email that you will send out. That shows you, you know, that they are uh, sharp from the very quickly.
1: This is for your sales internship program.
0: What about on the tech side? The tech side, uh, what has worked for us is carving out. So the interns in tech come in for basically profile building. So for them, the motivation is, if I can say I went to Hacker Earth and this is the project that I did, then their internship experience will add to their employability. So our goal, so what is their goal? is credentialing now how do we align to that right we always try to carve out a short enough project for the person that they can do it in two to three months so unlike sales this is not like you do six months and then you get converted it is your third year fourth year internship but we always at the end of that internship they have a takeaway saying i build this entire thing end to end and whether they're able to integrate it or not that's up." I mean, that's separate, but we make sure that their POC is working. And that, again, creates very good alignment. We pick up projects that are part of our roadmap. So they're not doing something on the fringes and they have a measurable outcome at the end of their internship. So they don't slack because they want to go back saying, I completed the project. Which also actually helps you move on your
1: roadmap faster because you have these relatively lower cost resources uh, working on smaller projects and uh, overall improving the product faster than if you were to build out all of this
0: talent in-house by hiring them. And we tend to give them projects which sometimes it's okay if they're a little experimental in nature, right? Because you also need to take those bets. Now that bet is a more costly with a full-time employee because they will come with the baggage. They will say, i properly, integrate it Intern knows I project, pura karna, right? So either it's an experiment or it is something that we're very confident of, but it's outside the core. Because core you you'll find there's a learning curve, all of those things, it slows them down. So keep them on the fringe a little bit and it works.
1: Mm. Okay, amazing, amazing.
0: So it seems like you have one of your core
1: values as frugality. Like a lot of things that you've told me, like this internship program is evidence of frugality. You have a very lean sales team. I think you don't spend so much money on customer acquisition, which is again, another evidence of frugality. Uh, Tell me about like, what is the, I mean, what's the goal that you're building towards? Like you want to, I mean, do you want to eventually do an IPO kind of a thing and therefore you want profitability or do you want to get like a unicorn status or what is the goal that you're building?
0: So I've never personally chased, uh, again, I'm not being, uh, I would say, dismissive. I would just say a unicorn status really means very little other than the fact that your, your company valuation is a billion plus. And in almost all those cases, it's because of the funding that you receive, right? Like the handful of companies who can defend that status just based on revenues. So not really chased a metric like this over the years. I think for us, we grew as a company very organically. We were also frugal because truth be told, we didn't raise a lot of capital and in nature, it's partly the response to the ecosystem as well. And from day one for us, it was like, like you
1: said it's not in your nature to do sales and like raising capital is like doing sales only. So that's why
0: you didn't really like chase funding. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, I, to be honest, it's not like I haven't pitched. I have pitched to every VC in the Indian ecosystem, given also that it's a small ecosystem. But I think one of the things we were, when we came in, SAS was not an industry, right? So we didn't, were not very successful in raising from traditional investors in India. That's why our series A was led by a strategic in the US and series B was from a Japanese investor. So you would know of Teru Sato, Teru Sato b next, right? Uh, he's one of our investors and he brought on a bunch of Japanese investors. And I think by the time we were 2018 and we were generating money, revenue, freedom of having control on what you're doing is addictive of sorts, right? So today, I have a very friendly board which is aligned to me and I'm aligned to my team. So we're all working as one single organization. It's not like my investors are pushing me to chase a certain other goal and then the company wants to do something else. And I think since 2018, since we've been net positive and growing, we're like, boss, why do we need it, right? So also because we're Trying to build a strong business, right? I don't know whether the market in the, in the in which we exist can, there can be an IPO. Maybe things change. Maybe we diversify a couple of years out and it becomes a larger, a much larger play. But I do know that there is a problem that we're solving. My goal is set on how do we go from 10 to 20 to 40 to 60 and or maybe 40 to 70 or 80. And from then, at that point in time, we'll see what opportunity comes. Um, I'm being very candid. I haven't put a goal of an IPO in 2026 or an acquisition in 2027. about building honest to God good business, solving customer problems, sustainably growing. I'm very proud of the fact we have not had a single layoff in the last 10 years, not a single instance. That's because we've been very conscious about how we build, how we grow. So I think these are values in just a different way of building business. I don't come a lot, a lot of companies like this, but you know, I have peers who have gone through a similar journey. And we enjoy doing it. By when do you think you'll cross like say a 50 million ARR mark? So last year we grew about 100% and the market was obviously right now. This year the macroeconomics are slightly different. But I think uh, my hope is that things would change about six to nine months. So about two to three quarters. Post that I feel fairly, and even then we would have grown at least 30, 40, 50%. So. If we are at fifteen by then, I feel confident of growing eighty to hundred percent for the next two years, two to three years. So, say fifteen to thirty, and thirty to fifty. So that's about three out three years out, we could look at going at being at a fifty million kind of hundred. Amazing, and this would be
1: like a high margin business, right? Because your input costs don't increase
0: correspondingly, right? I mean, so even right now, operating margins are like eighty nine percent. So but I obviously, we blow back all our revenue generated into growth. But I was just talking to my uh, VP engineering uh, CTO rather a few weeks back. So we can a- achieve a 10x on our engineering cost. So if we are spending 2 million on less engineering, we can generate 20 million of revenue. That's the kind of scalability we have in the system from an engineering point of view. Amazing, amazing. And how do you make such a lean sales team work? Uh,
1: you know, lot of lot of companies in the enterprise space, like you're an enterprise solution, right? Like, so enterprise solutions typically companies have like fairly large sales teams and so on. How do you make it work? Like, do you have like a growth hack through which you're able to get adoption faster? Or Like, say for example, Slack had that famous growth hack that people would use it individually and then they would advocate it to their organizations and heads. But do you have something similar to say? like as a-
0: Yeah, not really a growth hack per se, but what we've been able to do is be very conscious of the quota carrying reps. So conscious of making sure that they are working on the right opportunities. So one way to do that, we have an SDR team in place. And there's something that we just kind of cracked. So SDR reduces. So SDR is a cheaper resource. It allows me to have a leaner sales team. Advantage of a leaner sales team is you better control you have better visibility. But what is what is the difference between an
1: SDR and the quota carrying resource? Quota carrying resource is called what? Like account executive, or
0: account executive account executive or account manager. They are adding a revenue code. But an SDR and what does the SDR do? Like it's a qualifiers next demand generation role. So the SDR will qualify a meeting and say this is worth your time, go after this opportunity. And when they also generate opportunities. The second thing is we've always, so, you know, A is a dollar operated, right? You, they make money. If they make money, they grow and they are very motivated. So we've consciously taken an approach of saying, let's increase quota rather than adding more people. The benefit of that is I would still be able to do more revenue. My costs will not increase linearly and my reps will be more sticky because now they're making more revenue. Right, right. Their commissions would go up, like what they take home. Exactly. Having said that, we are not like extremely successful as well. The problem of a lean team is one low-performing resource and it puts added pressure on others. People leave, backfilling those positions become harder. So now we are trying to add a buffer of about 15-20%. So if I need 10 reps, I'll have probably 12. The other thing is my VP of sales are very hands-on. So both of them actually get on calls to close some high-value deals. I get on calls to close high-value deals. I do know, I mean, we'll always do this, but I think as we scale, we'll probably have to be more selective in what we're doing. But I, I believe in this model of have demand gen people, get them to be SDRs, get them to be AEs, have a continuous pipeline and, you know, increase quota per rep rather than increasing reps. as disproportionately, you know, disproportionately. Right. So basically build internally
1: instead of trying to buy talent, build talent internally. Correct. Right. And give more
0: learning opportunity, growth opportunity to every person.
1: Okay. Do you have like product features? Like there's this of product-led growth, which also companies use to drive more sales. Do you have any such product features which help you to drive sales?
0: So our model has, so PLG works when you have an open sign up and come in, sign up, start like a premium. And we do have a premium model, but that contributes to about less than 2% of our revenue. So most of my sales today, is most of my business is through sales team. And that's just how we've grown and how this industry is as well. Because there is typically a month-long pilot, which is associated with the whole sales process. We've got so many capabilities in the product, right? So the PLG comes in from an expansion. So once we have an account, then we can push, we do push them different capabilities. And that leads to expansion. One of the ways in which we expand is, we initially started off with a assessment slash screening product. Today, we have a interviewing product as well. So you can come in and conduct like real-time pay programming interviews with the interviewer and the interviewee. And that we are driving through product-led growth. So CSMs will give a free pilot, you know, we are even saying, okay, give six months unlimited usage, let them use it, and then we can build through it. You know, uh, tell me about the suite of products you have today. So one is the screening assessment,
1: which is checking out technical skills or a few non-technical skills like English and math and so on. And then you have an interview product, which is like a video interview with a screen share with whatever they're coding,
0: you can see. In. Okay. Okay. What else?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Correct. Correct. So, so this comes as a the bundle. Then obviously hackathons is for sourcing, which is top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. We are now introduced assessments from an upskilling perspective. So a lot of companies uh, introduce these upskilling courses or programs, right? But the problem where they fall flat is they rarely have a baseline of skills <clears throat> for their employees. And even when, even if they know, okay, this person is a beginner, when they take up a course, it's rarely a reflection of their progress. Right? Just course completion means nothing. So you do not know how the person is performing. And by the time they apply it on the job and you see it, it's a very long cycle to close. So we are now helping companies in pre and post assessments for their employees as they go through an upskilling journey. Obviously it has greater applicability in early to mid career. So a large, uh, I would say a big four consulting firm has like a goal of one of our customers, goal of 5,000 fresh grads, but they are willing to hire people who are raw and they want to put them through training. So that's where assessments from an upskill come in. And very recently, we've introduced a new solution. So now, you know, we are at a stage where we are slowly branching out into adjacencies and expanding the pool of offerings where we are providing interview as a service. So you use our assessments, which is completely automated, but you still got to do interviews. A lot of growing companies don't have enough bandwidth to do interviews. So we leverage, will leverage our own community, identify SMEs or subject matter experts and get them to interview for you in a standardized and scalable way. Okay, this would be a
1: technical interview? Like, like how would an external party do like a soft skills or a
0: culture fit? Those end- We don't do soft skills. It's all technical interviews. The beauty of tech roles is if you have five interviews, like Google in my time had five, only one was an HR round and that was a formality. <laughs> because your aptitude or your soft skills can be discovered in the tech interview itself. You need certain soft skills, like if you're stuck, will you speak up? Uh, how do you collaborate right so you can figure these things out during a. Okay.
1: So, so in this outsource interview model you are also sending back some scores on soft skills in addition to the scores on tech skills
0: like uh, problem solving skills from a point of view are they able to break down a large problem into small problems or do they ask clarifying questions when stuck with something do they communicate in the sense people tend to have solutions in their mind and they start working on things right away but in software engineering extremely important to Talk about the architecture, talk about why, how you're going to do it. Because, you know, if some you're wrong, somebody else can kind of, or if you're doing it in an inefficient manner, somebody can find out. So those can be tracked in an interview. Okay. okay. And you
1: have a playbook for the interviews that this is how you do it okay. or like,
0: yes. So typically it would be problem solving skills, then low level design and high level design has to be covered in an hour. And we even tell these are the kind of questions that you should be asking. But obviously we let interviewers come with their own creativity as well. Yeah, you know. okay and what budget do you get of this this interview This is a low mar- there's a low margin business because obviously human service so yeah yeah so i think uh we still really very early days for us so we're still kind of figuring it. i think we can uh our mar. i wouldn't say net. our gross margins can be about 30 to 40 percent in the whole thing and we'll have you know what's the sales cost to really see uh, i mean that's the operating margin if we include certain and while the time it out it could be low But we are looking at it as a way for us to, you know, drive more stickiness in the business uh, and also give a whole suite of solutions. So at scale, this could be, it could be a high market. Okay. So like I want to zoom out more and understand the landscape
1: for a customer, who are people competing for his wallet I'll give you some names that I think would be in that set. Tell me what you think of them. Like there are these assessment platforms, like say your Metal, IMOCA. These are two names I know of. Then you have job posts, LinkedIn, Dockery, et cetera, and so on. And then maybe GitHub also, I believe has like a job posting functionality in it. So, so just tell me like what you see as your competitors. And- yeah.
0: We rarely compete with a, uh, a, a pure sourcing platform like a LinkedIn or Nocti or whoever else because so it's a very large landscape and we are only taking away our, a piece of their wallet, right? We will never, I won't say never, never say never, but I don't think we'll replace a Nocti, right? Not just take it as other things as well. Okay. And uh, GitHub, HackerRank, like, what were these? So, yeah, so GitHub is not really a competitor. GitHub is, I mean, GitHub has jobs, but then again, like I said, we don't worry about sourcing platforms. Our biggest competitor in the space actually is HackerRank because they are similar to what we do. They also are larger because, you know, they kind of moved to the US earlier. They have a bigger UX presence. But okay. they also started in India the early. They started, but they very quickly, most of I think they, they, were, they were good enough in doing what well, they got into icom and we also applied to Vice after that, but then Vice doesn't take competing companies, uh, uh, you know, in short position. So, and it was a margin of three, six months, whatever. So, they moved to the U.S. far early, uh, and there a lot of businesses in the U.S. But we, we in this space, there will like three, four players. Or there's another called Cability, uh, and then there's rank. And like I said, you know, the product is very strong. So, they're in the top. And then, and market is big enough for a couple of and kind of coexist. So my last question to you,
1: what is your advice for aspiring founders who have not yet taken the plans, but what to?
0: So not just one thing, but you know, multiple things. One is understand that it is, so what has happened is the recent growth in funding and all the news it's made, which is good actually, which has made entrepreneurship very lucrative. But at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is very, very hard and uh, there is no overnight success. Even though we read those stories and even if there is an overnight success, that's an anomaly. The rule is the slog. You got to work hard. And one needs to understand that while there is a lot of glamour, there's a lot of pride in being the CEO and a founder. There's a lot of grind, So you've got to be really understand that people with systems, hard work, character are the ones who would succeed. So keep that in mind. The second thing is very important to understand. There are two ways to build a business. One is venture led. The other is a lifestyle business. So know what you're going in for. Don't start a lifestyle business and then expire for venture funding, or build a venture like waste tons kind of capital and then struggle in you know because you have this pressure. So that you should not get into that odd place. And the difference between these two would be the market size you are chasing. Like I mean, there are lifestyle businesses in large markets as well. Uh, for it point being, global. But you know those gro- so growth there happens over a period of time, right? And it is hard, right? Like particularly fitting against venture-funded companies. So I think now we've reached a point where you cannot afford to grow in five years, right? If it's a big market, because somebody will raise that land and just go after it. So maybe your point is that your market is big enough for you to succeed and you got got to raise money. So know that, right? And if you you want to build a venture-funded company, which is you, if that is what you want to do, go after a big market. Do not go after a small market and expect VC money. Culture of the company that you build is extremely important. And it's kind of funny that a good culture will not, does not mean a successful company. Like there are, I've seen companies with bad cultures also succeeding and great cultures not succeeding. So there are almost like two tracks. So don't forget that as a founder CEO. And that brings us to the end of this conversation.
1: I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at thepodium.in. That's ad at T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M dot in.